Good afternoon and welcome to the 193rd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion with Ed Young, science writer for The Atlantic, whose exceptional stories this year have set the bar for pandemic reporting. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I can report that our recruiting for members of Congress, the House of Representatives and the Senate is going very well. We will have several congressional guests joining us in January, all thanks to the never ending work of my production assistant, Shivani Patel. As of today, December 22nd, 2020, there are 1,710,128 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 77,708,508 cases of COVID-19 reported in the United States. There are now a total of 320,864 deaths reported in the U.S., up from 318,602 reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Beloved Mother, Ector County Independent School District Teacher Dies of COVID-19. This story appeared on Newswest 9 in Odessa, Texas by Jonathan Polasek, and it appeared on December 2nd. COVID-19 has struck hundreds of thousands of people across the United States, and it has struck in West Texas again. This time, an Ector County Independent School District teacher died on Thanksgiving. It was Amalia Gonzalez's 50th wedding anniversary. Never skipping a beat, Dancing and singing, Amalia Gonzalez was the life of the party. My mom was so much fun, she loved to travel. She said that her most expensive habit was my son, her grandson. My son Jacob was her only grandchild, Rebecca Lopez, Amalia's daughter, said. For Rebecca, Amalia was her mom, but she was also more than that. She was a caring grandmother and a get dedicated teacher to her students. She loved teaching her kids. She had actually retired many, many years ago, but she kept going back to substitute teach. I'm like, why do you keep doing this? Why don't you just go and enjoy retirement? And she said, I don't want to just sit around the house, and I love being there with the kids, Lopez said. Teaching was more than just a job to Amalia. Rebecca believes that teaching was her mother's calling. I think it was her purpose in life. Teaching was her purpose. She impacted so many children in Odessa that she taught over her more than 40 years as a teacher, Lopez said. It wasn't just those that she taught that she impacted, but everyone she met. She was the first person to volunteer, the matriarch of her family, a loyal friend, and a beloved family member. Malia was always trying to spread love and happiness. 
She was always trying to make people smile. That's just who she was, Lopez said. In late November, COVID-19 reached Rebecca's family. The virus hit Amalia without warning. My mom started exhibiting symptoms on Monday, the week of Thanksgiving, and she sounded like she had allergies, Lopez said. On Thanksgiving morning, just a few days after she began showing symptoms, Amalia died. Amalia and her husband Santos had been married 50 years to the day on Thanksgiving this year. It was their 50th wedding anniversary, and we had delayed celebration because we didn't want to get together because of COVID. So she died on their 50th wedding anniversary on Thanksgiving Day. So that was just heart-wrenching for my father. You know, he used to call her mi vida, my life, Lopez said. The hardest part for Rebecca was not being able to hold her father and her sister because they're also being tested for COVID. I think the hardest part of all this is not being able to hold them and hold my dad and hug him and comfort him and comfort my sister and together, you know, just grieve as a family, Lopez said. As for the people who believe that this virus will impact them, Rebecca wants them to think twice. The virus is everywhere. They need to think twice because these statistics aren't just statistics. There are people behind the numbers and behind every number is a grieving family, is a grieving friend, there's a grieving loved one, Lopez said. Okay, I'd like to turn to our conversation for today. Let me introduce my guest. Really been looking for this, uh, looking forward to this discussion. Ed Young is a scientist, science journalist who reports for The Atlantic and is based in Washington, D.C. His work appears on The Atlantic's website and its print magazine. It's also been featured in National Geographic, The New Yorker, Wired, Nature, New Scientist, Scientific American, and many more. He's won several awards, including the Victor Cohn Prize for Medical Science Reporting, the Neil and Susan Sheehan Award for Investigative Journalism, and a AAAS Cavley Science Journalism Award for In-Depth Reporting in 2020, among many others, other awards. He regularly does talks and interviews, and his TED Talk on mind-controlling parasites has been watched by over 1.5 million people. I Contain Multitudes, his first book, looks at the amazing partnerships between animals and microbes. It was published in 2016 and became a New York Times bestseller. It was also listed among the best of 2016 lists by the New York Times, NPR, The Economist, The Guardian, and several others. And he is currently working on another book, An Immense World, looking at the extraordinary sensory worlds of other animals. And I don't know how he has time to do any of that when he's writing uh, his stories this year about COVID-19. Ed Young, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let me start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling from and how the pandemic is looking there today. Uh, I am in D.C. and it is still ongoing. Uh, I don't know what the latest numbers are, but um, D.C., much like much, uh, most of the country, has also experienced a uh, wintertime surge. And I don't see that stopping anytime soon. Let's uh, find out a little bit about um, just you in terms of background. How did you find your way into Science journalism, I know, you know, I know a lot of science historians and they're split. Um, many of them start as scientists or start traveling that road and then they make they veer off into history at some point. Was that your pathway or you always headed towards journalism? 
Uh, no, the, the former. Um, I was, uh, I had always been interested in science and uh, I was, I did uh, two years um, as the world's worst PhD student um, in a molecular biology lab before I realized I was much better at writing and talking about science than actually doing it. Um, and that's been my career for the last uh, 16 years. Um, so I got into science writing first by doing my own blog. Uh, then doing some smaller freelance pieces, bigger freelance pieces, and then I've been at The Atlantic as its first um, staff science writer uh, for five years now. So uh, you've tipped your hand a little bit about the blogging. I mean, that really, uh, you you were in on some of the earlier days of, of that kind of work? I was. I am a scarred veteran of the <laughs> Can Bloggers Be Journalists Wars <laughs> of the late 2000s, and, you know, I feel like we've conclusively answered that question now. I, I hope, you know, if we've done one thing in the last decade, we, we can say that. What was it like it, when you were doing stories in those earlier days and blogging, I guess, as Ed Young? I mean, you didn't have an institutional affiliation when you first started doing that kind of writing? Um, you know, in some ways, it, it's helpful to come in as a bit of an outsider. Um, I, I think a lot of uh, British science blogging in those early days was sort of motivated by a frustration with um, what uh, mainstream coverage was not doing or getting wrong. Um, so, like, I, I came into it with this with um, like very um, strong values of wanting to be. Uh, very accurate, uh, wanting to embrace nuance and uncertainty and complexity. And, you know, a ton of great science journalists um, share those values very much. And it's, you know, I think it, it's been interesting to think about how that arc of um, uh, that that arc of value has carried over across my career and, into, and informed like the type of coverage that I've done this year. What were some of the stories that in those early, in that earlier time when you first started publishing, what were some of the things that you were most passionate about? Mostly um, animal behavior, so uh, mm -hmm. the natural world. Um, that's something I'm still very passionate about. Uh, obviously, this year the natural world kind of kicked us in the ass, um, but um, it's still a place of tremendous wonder, and it's something that I, I love writing about. Well, I want to um, I want to read just a little something from a piece you published, not this year. Uh, I'm just going to quote here, outbreaks of disease you wrote are among the ultimate mm -hmm. tests for any leader who wants to play on the global stage. They demand diplomacy, decisiveness, leadership, humility, and expertise, and they quickly unearth any lack of the same. For now, we can only speculate using the president-elect's own words and actions to predict how he might fare in an outbreak. You wrote that four years almost to the day ago. Um, so how... I mean, first of all, I don't know how you had the foresight to write that piece, um, but what was on your mind then? And, you know, with this perspective of time four years later, how did it hold up? Okay, so I wrote that piece about how a pandemic might played out under Trump um, almost, as you say, almost exactly four years ago, uh, between his election and his inauguration. And partly that was, I think, I actually struggle to remember why I specifically did that. I think one reason was that um, Trump uh, had uh, Trump was very, very vocal during the Ebola crisis of 2014. Um, you know, he criticized Obama's uh, 
uh, efforts to uh, deal with the virus, uh, deal with the outbreak in West Africa. He uh, spread a huge amount of misinformation. Um, and uh, I think given that it was, it, it has been clear to me for a while that um, you know, epidemics and pandemics are regular features of the world and that we should expect new ones to arise with some regularity, that it was likely that some new epidemic would would test the mettle of this incoming president who had already proved himself to be uh, reckless um, and divisive, uh, even as a citizen during a previous pandemic. And so it, it sort of behooved us to consider how he might uh, react if he was put to the challenge um, of something like Zika or MERS or Ebola or H1N1, four different epidemics that uh, Barack Obama had to deal with during his two terms as president. Um, it's interesting looking back in the piece because, you know, a lot of it was correct, I think. Um, you know, he did tweet rashly. He did spread spread conspiracies. He did relegate experts to the bench uh, and instead, you know, tout his own uh, opinions despite his inexperience. Um, you know, I think looking back on that piece, it, it was almost like wonderfully, opt like naively optimistic about how Trump might deal with a crisis like this. Uh, I think that the, um, it, you know, I, I think that it, it, it was almost as if that he, it, it, I think the, the piece gravitates towards assuming that he would overreact rather than what he has actually done this year, which is catastrophically underreact. Um, you know, all, all the things about misinformation and uh, his attitudes or expertise, I think, are correct. But I don't think I or many others saw saw it coming that uh, his response would be just quite so lackadaisical. In the piece you you cite early on in the piece, you, you interviewed Art Kaplan, who's a bioethicist uh, and Eminently quotable, great guy to talk to. We had him at a guest at Drexel University years ago, and the students, of course, hung on every word he said. And he painted an incredibly, as you said, very a, a possible pandemic response of a possible Trump administration that was incredibly active and I think culminated in closing the borders and, and asserting martial law. Um, and then in the rest of the piece, you kind of you kind of back away from that ledge and talk through the various different things that that could happen. And like you, I, I guess I've been um, surprised to see all of the things that he could have done that he that he didn't, particularly early on. There's another aspect of it, though, I wanted to, to get your take on, because you do talk a lot in the piece about the infrastructure that is in place, that seemingly it would be hard for an executive to undo in a short period of time. That's right. federal, CDC, the federal science bureaucracy, but then also state and even down to the county level. And I wonder what you think about that now that there's been some time to observe how that broader infrastructure of response um, has played in this pandemic. Yeah, I think there's a there's a really interesting. There are there are several ways of um, of answering that question. Um, so, firstly, I think it it really shows what has happened this year. Really shows the difference that having um, someone who is extremely incomp incompetent at the top level position, like the, the amount of difference that could make to all the subsequent levels of the pandemic response. You know, I don't, I don't think that, um, I think that what's happened to the CDC, like the degree to which 
an agency full of seasoned infectious disease experts has been thoroughly sidelined this year. I think the extent to which that has happened has been very surprising, including to some scholars of the CDC who I have talked to. Um, it, you know, the, without to to some extent, America is is America's healthcare system and policy, political system is is built to work at a local level, um, but the the tenets of federalism don't allow for the local the local and state levels to work on their own like there are things that the feds absolutely are essential for um you know money is one thing obviously the states can't legally spend at a deficit so to get the mass rollout of a lot of the things that we've needed this year of testing of ppe and and so on um we've needed federal coordination and a federal push um and that ha that hasn't been there i, I think having a disconnect in messaging from the very top has led to um, probably a greater variance in messaging at the middle and bottom layers than we might we might otherwise have seen. Um, Ron Klain, um, who you know was Ebola's uh, no, Obama's Ebola czar right. and will be Biden's chief of staff, expressed this very well that you know the it's. It is difficult to get the ship to turn, even in the best of times. Mm. Um, it turns if the president stands up and says, turn. It absolutely does not if the president sits back in his chair and does nothing. And I think the, the cascading influence of top level incompetence, I think, has been really interesting to watch this year. But the other way to think about this problem mm. is that there have been a lot of analyses about um, what has gone wrong this year that center Donald Trump. And while I do think he is absolutely critical in understanding America's pandemic failure, he is not the only player. And I think any explanation that treats him as that um, fails to grasp with the scope of what has happened to this country this year. You know, in, in, Trump is interesting because he is both a catalyst of America's failure, but also a symptom of it. But he is the consequence of many of the problems that have besieged the country this year. You know, this, this, these attitudes to expertise, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the disregard for expertise, the um, spread of misinformation. Um, Trump rode to power on all of those things and all of those things independently made a difference this year. Like if there's one theme that runs through much of my coverage of COVID-19, it's that uh, you know, uh, um, what has happened to America in 2020 reflects much deeper, longer rooted um, problems uh, like historical inequities, the underfunding of public health, um, its prison system, the way it thinks about its elderly, um, its entire attitude to healthcare that um, that focuses on the very back end, the very sickest people, rather than preventing uh, sickness from taking off in communities. All of these things contributed to what we're seeing around us. And you know, tr Trump is part of that problem, but he's he's not the he's not the only part by a long by a long way. I I really appreciate that theme throughout your coverage because it's also, uh, to my mind, at least really in line with the way we should be thinking about disasters, which is as processes over of, of long making and with long indeterminate endpoints. There's a tension there for journalists, though, because Trump has so much made himself the story. It seems like there's been a tendency. Um, I mean, he is the president of the United States, but still to center him so much 
um, it seems like there must be pressure on news organizations to to go with that flow because there's a lot of eyeballs that want to see that and there's a lot of clicks behind that Trump name, aren't there? I I agree. Um, you know, I, I think that um, I think that the the thinking is less um, like mercenary than that. You know, it's it, the 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 thinking that a lot of the the sort of model that a lot of people have, where journalists are like trying to pursue clicks. Sure, in some cases, I, I think the the bigger problem is that Trump just generates news. He he mm. is very good at centering himself, and and I think that again. You know, I'm going to shift this question to to one thing I just said about how um, Trump is symptomatic of our problems, right? So the fact that we are drawn, the fact that like news organization organizations are drawn to Trump like a moth to a flame, also reflects this general focus on the present, on what is newsworthy, and sure, like you could very reasonably argue that is the whole point of us. But it's a difficult value in the context of a pandemic, which, as you say, stretches massively back in time and massively into the future. And that that kind of presentism, that, that um, that's probably the wrong word, that, that intense focus on what is happening right now on the, you know, on breaking news does leave us in no, like I don't think well placed to truly understand the complexities of a crisis of this magnitude. I do think that this is one area in which magazine journalism has a bit of an advantage because I think naturally we are a bit we are more predisposed to considering the past and the future um, and to to take a little bit more of a broader, bigger um, a bigger view. Um, I think the Atlantic as, as a whole has this value. Like we try to, when we write about things, we try and look um, laterally. So not just at the thing we're writing about, but across a bunch of different disciplines and, uh, and you know, uh, and temporarily too. So back in time, uh, it, you know, in, into the future. Um, uh, Ross Anderson, a, a close collaborator of mine, we have this running joke that like all magazine stories like, you know, after the first intro, always have a long history section. You know, it's right. like, to understand the pandemic, <laughs> we must go back in time to ancient yeah. Sumer. That's why we're your tar historians are your target audience, I think. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> but, but I think that, you know, I, I joke, but I think that that actually is a, um, is something that has been really valuable to me this year, to have the space and the sort of uh, the institutional culture that welcomes that approach. Um, you know, I've said in other interviews that that right from the start, my my editors and I agreed that the thing that we needed to do was to take big swings. Like, so rather than just write, um, you know, an 800 word piece once a day on like some new preprint that was coming out, we were gonna try and answer like the big, important zeitgeisty questions like things like how will the pandemic end why is all of this so confusing what is going to happen in the summer and and that sort of informed our attitudes to to our coverage and that's helped i think to resist a bit of that that trump effect you know to see the that what is happening to us right now against the entire arc of history um to think about the long-term consequences and when we do deal with trump to situate him in that context
just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and today I'm talking to Ed Young, and you can get your uh, questions in if you're listening by way of YouTube Live. You can just put them into the YouTube Live chat. If you're watching on Periscope, you can just put them uh, up on Twitter and just tag at US of Disaster, or if you'd like to go old school, you can even email them to me. Some people still like to do that, sgk23 at drexel.edu with your questions for Ed Young. Ed, um, I want to ask you a little bit about the craft of journalism at, at this time, what you were just talking about, really taking these big, big swings. And I know journalists always have their, we've heard a lot about surveillance this year. You have your own sort of surveillance system. Your antenna are up for breaking news um, that you then want to spend some time developing this de deeper history with. Can you take us back to January, I'm assuming, um, when this pandemic first crossed into your consciousness? Yeah, so um, January and February were sort of odd times for me because I was on book leave at that point and, you know, very, very head down um, into this project about something completely different. Um, I saw the pandemic happening. I was still writing pieces for The Atlantic um, on a regular basis and I covered it a couple of times, but I didn't really have the mental space to devote. I mean, it's such an it's such an all-encompassing story. I didn't have the mental space to devote to it properly until mid-March. Uh, when the Atlantis asked me to come back from book leave and, and focus on pandemic reporting at, at that time for a month. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> arguably that's actually what happened given that we are still in March right now. We're in the- Yeah, I was gonna say long month. Right, that's right, 290th day of March or whatever. Yeah. Um, that being, so when I, when I came back, um, Again, the 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 idea from the start was take big swings. Um, so the first thing I wanted to do was to write this piece about how the pandemic was going to play out um, over the year um, into the future. Um, it was immediately obvious, even then, that like there was no way of covering the story that of covering the story well that just involved talking to the usual coterie of like virologists and epidemiologists and immunologists who I would talk to in my stories on like my usual beat that it also I also needed to talk to historians and anthropologists and sociologists and um, you know all all, um, uh, all kinds of other folks um, just because this was so much more than just a science and health story you know it was this omni story that transcended beats and disciplines and that that's something that I've tried to do for for the rest of the year um, in terms of trying to find like the right big swing to take, a lot of it is very generative. You know, you talk to, I, I for most of these big, so I've now written eight, eight stories that are between the five to 8,000 word mark and about 21, I think, that are within the two to 4,000 mark. So they're all like very big, meaty features. Um, for the bigger ones, I'm interviewing maybe 30 to 50 different experts. Um, some of that material goes into the piece. A lot doesn't. A lot just sort of percolates in my head. Um, between that, looking at discussions that people are having on Twitter um, and the very, very active Slack culture that we have on the Atlantic where um, all of us in the newsroom are constantly sharing story ideas and, and you know, uh, links to other pieces of people's materials, questions that we have ourselves. Like it becomes... Uh, uh, not easy, but I think there is a process of sort of organically triangulating at sort of what the right um, questions are to be asking in the future. Um, and it's it's been surprising to me, like how that 
how well that process has worked. Like I don't, I don't ascribe myself any special prescience, um, but uh, you know, like the I wrote a cover story for the Atlantic about how the pandemic defeated America that came out in August because print deadlines are much longer than web ones. Um, I conceived and reported that story in June, um, and then it went to the printers in July, and then there were like there was like a month where much happened in the world and nothing happened in the piece. And it still came out and I think felt timely. And I think it came out at roughly the time when everyone was going, really, how did this happen? You know, and the cover of the, the magazine was, how did it come to this? Um, and I think there is that sort of alchemy that comes from, from really just paying attention to what people are saying. Like I've tried my best this year to, uh, not be a pundit on Twitter um, and to like to share my reporting rather than my opinions. I think the former is where I can add value to the discourse. Mm. Um, and and I think by by holding back and actually listening and watching, it's become easier to actually figure out what what's sort of on the horizon rather than just like, you know, getting drowned in like Twitter spats or whatever. You've also been willing to share um even in the um, in the stories, you've been willing to share some of your own anxieties and your own wrestling with uncertainty, which mm -hmm. I think has been a real um, challenge for for journalists and scientists who want to be able to sort of cut through uncertainty and give people real facts and real interpretations. I mean, just to, I just want to quote a line from your March twenty fifth piece, which, as you've just said, you were just getting immersed in the story at that point, coming off book leave, this is from your piece, How the Pandemic Will End, and you write, I was talking about the pandemic with a pregnant friend who was days away from her due date. We realized that her child might be one of the first of a new cohort who are born into a society profoundly altered by COVID-19. We decided to call them Generation C. As we'll see, Gen C's lives will be shaped by the choices made in the coming weeks and by the losses we suffer as a result. You wrote that on March 25th. That's really striking to me to read that then because on the one hand when you read that you kind of want to say yeah ed it's there's a lot of change coming even in the next 30 days after you write that and yet that frame holds up mm -hmm. because i don't know where we're going to be six months from from now so that uncertainty as a tool to use in your own writing as a frame i think has really resonated with people yeah, I think um, one one thing we talk about at the Atlantic a lot is is giving people the language that helps them um, talk about uh, what what is happening, um, and and we think about that a lot. So like Gen Z was sort of part of that, you know, that, that was that just came very organically from me talking to my editor and, and just like using this phrase, and both of us going, huh. Um, but you know, I've, I've written pieces about um, uh, about the patchwork nature of the pandemic, um, the pandemic spiral that we've all found ourselves trapped in. Um, yeah, uh, a line I wrote in the August cover story, um, normal led to this, um, uh, was cited today uh, by, um, in this lovely Medium post about um, like quote, like memorable quotes from this year. And, and that that is something we think about, right? I think there is a power in naming things. Um, and in, in giving people sort of concepts and language and vocabulary that they can use to describe a very chaotic moment around them. 
Um, I think the, the point about grappling with uncertainty is something we've already talked about in this call, but I think is just absolutely paramount to the conduct of good journalism and good science journalism in particular. And I don't think, you know, I, I don't think uncertainty should be presented as uh, either a difficulty or in you know, in con in in opposition to to facts, I think that the that we are uncertain about many things is itself a fact that we need to convey to people um, clearly. Um, I, I think it's it's a challenge, but um, I personally think that readers both respect and can absolutely appreciate it. You know, I think people can hold uncertainty and nuance and complexity in their heads if we do our if we do the job well enough of framing it for them. That's been one of the um, cracks, though, that people have observed, that cracks through which um, you, in, into which disinformation can seep and you know i know this is a struggle for anybody who analyzes science as deeply as you do to simultaneously convey the the thrill and the excitement of discovery because there's a way in which i imagine in the future people will write about this year as as the thrilling you know a, attempt to conquer a disease that's killing millions of people around the world resulting in a vaccine and there's a lot, but there's been uncertainty at every step. And you wrote that you wrote about that in in April in your piece, in which you asked, you know, why is this so confusing? So to capture that, that the thrill and the uncertainty of science, while at the same time being aware, it's that uncertainty has been weaponized and used by those who yeah. chose to use that uncertainty as an electoral strategy. Which I didn't think anything could surprise me anymore about this administration. I was floored by that. Yeah, agreed. Um, so Kate Starbird at the University of Washington uh, writes beautifully about this topic, and, and she's, you know, she she explains this um, fear and un, fear and uncertainty cycle, where um, because people are anxious and scared, and there is so much uncertainty around, um, all of these problems um, feed into each other and leaves people in this. Um, state where they're constantly searching for more information at a point when actually the amount of solid information there is to be found is quite low. And that leaves them vulnerable to misinformation, um, of which there is plenty. And I think there are, in terms of uncertain, in terms of addressing uncertainty, like there are there are different ways of doing it. You could try and say, it doesn't exist and shoot for certainty. But I think in, an, in, an, in a time when we actually don't know that much or where there are big holes in our knowledge, that approach is wrong. Like, I think it's, um, it, um, I think it leads us as journalists and, and leads our readers astray. I think a much better approach to addressing uncertainty and, and a better approach to reducing uncertainty is to map it, is to show people the full scope of what we don't know, but to delimit the bounds of that, right? And, and to show people why we don't know certain things, how we might find out, what the likely answers are either way, um, and, and to just sort of it, just walk them through those steps. Um, like here, here is a one, is a one very, one very um, 
timely example. There's there's a lot of discussion right now about uh, the vaccines that are going to roll out. The fact that it is very clear that they are effective at preventing disease, but the fact that we also we don't know uh, we don't yet know whether they prevent transmission of the virus, and whether they can stop people from developing being infected in the first place. Now, this is a subtle thing to talk about because. Yes, we don't know that for sure because we don't actually have the data, but we should have pretty strong priors that they do prevent transmission just based on what we know about immunology, um, based on some hints from early trials and some of the animal experiments. So there is a way of finessing this, this um, what we say about this that acknowledges the fact that we don't know for sure, but our educated guesses would take us down a certain direction rather than just say, you know, or to, or to say, um, or conversely to say, well, they definitely do without acknowledging that there is a chance they might not. It's a small chance, but it exists. And yeah, so I think, I think to show, you don't have to sweep uncertainty out down under the rug. You can show people its boundaries and its nature. And I've had a lot of people say to me that these bigger pieces have really helped them to cope with the stresses of the moment for exactly this reason, because it it gives them a sense of where we are now, what we know, what we don't know, and what might happen in the future with caveats and whatever. But I think it gives them. I'm going to. So I've used this analogy so many times before, so forgive the repetition. But like, I've compared the pandemic to like a torrential body of water where you're constantly being swept away. It's very turbulent. You're being submerged in it all the time. Um, and I think good journalism that grapples with uncertainty provides people with a platform on which they stand, they can stand, you know, think of a raft or a rock or whatever, like just a solid surface from which they, from a position of strength and stability can observe this chaos around them without drowning in it in the moment. Mm -hmm. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and you can get your questions in on YouTube Live and on and on Twitter. I'm talking with Ed Young today about his reporting this year on, on COVID-19. Just to come back to, you mentioned the piece that you um, published uh, late in the summer about how the pandemic defeated America. And something you said in there, to me, is, it really strikes me as terrifying, that, that you do have to go to press with a piece, and then you have this fast-moving terrain um, of coverage. You know. Historians don't generally worry. We pretty much assume that we send a piece off that within a year, the interpretation of that history is not going to change. So I'm, I'm empathizing with your concern. But as you said, um, the overall framing was was right. And, and you've touched on it multiple points in our discussion. But I, I want to come back to it more directly. What are the structures that you think really showed themselves over this year that did allow the pandemic to turn out to be as bad as it has been. Yeah, um, I mean, there are <laughs> there are a lot, I've sort of touched on, on a lot of them in, in, in quick length. Like there are things like, um, <laughs> you know, I think the, the pandemic hit prisons hard because we have a ridiculous carceral state. It hit nursing homes hard because they, were, they are chronically understaffed. Um, you know, they, uh, they, we reacted too quickly because we had a government that was denuded of expertise and that had long ridiculed expertise. Um, we had a lot of misinformation spreading because we rely on social media platforms that 
almost act as radicalization engines that, um, that are sort of geared towards spreading extreme content. All of these things are, are part of it, for sure. If you ask me to pick any, like, one or two aspects of these, like, historical problems that have really screwed us over this year, um, I, I, would, I would pick the following. So the, the first is um, America's uh, disinvestment in public health. Um, in general, right? So we focus our healthcare on uh, on treating very sick people in hospitals, and have traditionally um, and have for some time moved away from um, uh, from community level public health, which has long been underfunded. Um, you know, this is this shouldn't be new to anyone who's originally talked about this before. Right? Everyone in public health talks about how. The whole system is underfunded and creaky. That people don't value prevention because if you prevent sickness, no one notices. You just have a nice, normal, healthy day, and you take that for granted. And, um, but it, you know that it's it's not inevitable, right? Like that's that's sort of a truism: the invisibility of prevention. But other countries absolutely do have healthcare systems that are better geared towards the community level, towards um, towards the prevention of disease. And often these are countries without the massive healthcare resources that America has, um, and countries that have done very well this year, despite their lack of resources. So, um, you know, forget like the Australias and the New Zealands and all the, the very prominent countries that are, that are billed as success stories. Think about places like Rwanda. Mm -hmm. um, Rwanda, uh, I think, spends like 40% of its healthcare budget at the primary care level, like on things like prevention in, in communities. And they have done an extraordinary job um, with, with the pandemic. Um, Vietnam is a country that reacted very, very quickly and like just did this beautifully executed uh, uh, public health um, counterattack and also really kept the pandemic under control. Like these these two countries that count their number of deaths in the low dozens. Um, you know, that's like, that's less than, that's less than the number of Americans who've I think died every hour in yeah. December. You know, that, that I think should give us huge uh, reason for pause uh, and to consider like questions of hubris, uh, of like colonial attitudes to global health, but you know they should make America think about how its healthcare is structured and what it's biased towards and against. Um, and I think about this especially in the context of the the vaccines that are imminent, right? So mm -hmm. we're about to undergo. We we are. So obviously the private sector is involved in rolling out campaign like this, the vaccine, CVS and Walgreens and the rest are important. But a lot of this is going to come down to public health. It's going to come down to the same people who have been underfunded, who have worked in underfunded public health departments for decades, um, who have been harassed and harangued over the course of this year for just doing their jobs. Uh, and who now, after a full year of exhaustion, trying to fight this pandemic with very little like backup, um, have to carry out the most complicated vaccination campaign in US history. Um, you know, if that's not a sign that we under that we undervalue what public health does, I, I don't know what is. Um, and the, the, the vaccine is part of this because I think 
in addition to in a, in addition to the skew um, into to skew and how we think about healthcare, we also skew towards the towards biomedical countermeasures, right? So you know, we we, we look for we folk, pe people throughout the year have you know talked to me about looking for vaccines and drugs as the end game, and if, whereas things like masks and physical distancing are non pharmaceutical interventions, which is hilarious uh, as a term because they were the only interventions right. that we had access to for yeah. most of this year. They were the things that actually stopped. Still. Right, still, and will continue to be important um, uh, as the vaccine rollout happens well into 2021. Um, so I think that there is something about the way we try and like techno fix our way out of problems yeah. um, that is a historical um, issue with this country, not singularly, but but like maybe uniquely in degree that I think has, you know, again manifested this year and will probably continue to be a, an issue as we move into 2021. I think it's your most recent um, really long piece in the Atlantic, How Science Beat the Virus. I mean, you've really just summarized for us, I think, a lot of the tension um, that's that, that's in that piece. And you describe, I mean, it's so, the structure of it is so compelling because you describe um, the scientific challenges and, and how they were met and vaccines and sort of um, the political economy of it and how science works and the numbers you, you cited there about the number of of publications, the amount of dollars that got turned into a Manhattan project on steroids to fight COVID-19. But then you pivot in the piece and you and you say there's danger in viewing science in this way. And I think it's what you were just describing and you used the term the techno fix or a biomedical turn. And I know none of us mean any disrespect to the genius geniuses who've been working on saving lives this year, but this is set against a bigger backdrop about yeah. science policy and where money goes and who's ultimately being served by these vaccines and who will ultimately not be served by this approach to science. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the fact that we have two very effective vaccines uh, less than a year after this virus was first identified is an astonishing um, feat of scientific, uh, of scientific innovation. And we should absolutely um, lord and praise that. Um, you know, in the piece I write about this massive pivot um, of scientists towards COVID-19, not just in vaccinology, but in every area of studying and understanding this virus, um, that too uh, has good and bad sides. You know, it, it showed up a lot of altruism, a lot of people just wanting to help out, and a lot of opportunism, people using, a lot of people using this moment to achieve greater prestige at the cost of truth and rigor. Um, you know, as a historian, like you, you well know that this is not the first time that society has pivoted to um, and uh, to to tackle uh, a new uh, an epidemic disease. You know, the same things have happened with malaria in World War Two or like polio in the post post war years, um, and uh, and HIV after a huge amount of reticence, um, and. Uh, Alondra Nelson, an amazing sociologist, said to me um, when I interviewed her for that piece, like, the thing is, there's always a pivot, right? There's, there's always decisions we make about what we value and what we choose to study. And always, always, there are things that are worth studying that are not being studied. 
Um, and I think that's very true now. You know, we we pro we focused on vaccines. Um, we we did a ton of basic research, but a lot of the social side of medicine was left out. Well, not by everyone, um, but but a, a lot of it. Um, a, a lot of it was certainly didn't have the same focus um, that that the biomedical aspects did. Um, I wrote in, in that piece about Rudolf Virchow, who in, in the mid 19th century and uh, examined this typhus epidemic um, in Upper Silesia and wrote very, very astutely that you know, regardless of what caused this, and he didn't know the typhus bacterium back then, um, whatever caused it, the epidemic occurred because of poor housing, poor sanitation, poor education, linguistic barriers, inept politicians, um, aristocrats who didn't care about um, the, like, the poor people. Um, all of these factors you know, could be a list of why COVID-19 has hit some communities so hard this year. But that, um, that sense of epidemics as um, having deep historical and social roots has been downplayed over the course of the 20th century as um, you know people ident as germ theory became ascendant as people focused on diseases as a fight between an individual and a pathogen and as all and a societal as as like societal factors became better you know as as we got better sanitation and lifespans and uh, lengthened and um, you know, and and people lived in healthier environments, like not equally, but but in general, and and I think that to make us better placed to deal with the next inevitable pandemic, we absolutely need to think about that social side of things. You know, we need to think about the long-standing health inequities that have led black and Latino and indigenous Americans and Pacific Islanders to be disproportionately hit by the virus this year. We need to think about how politics and our information architectures affect the way pandemics play out. We need to think about, um, you know, matters of um, poverty and, uh, and politics and, and, and all the rest um, and not see uh, the, and not see pandemic preparedness simply as a matter of drugs and vaccines and and surveillance systems and the like. Um, you know, it, it, unless we unless we get our health systems, and I use that term in like the widest possible sense to include like the ways we think about health, to include matters of equity. Um, we're going to get hit really hard again. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking with Ed Young today. He's been publishing nonstop about this pandemic in the Atlantic, and we've been talking about his year and these pieces. I, I want to follow up, Ed. You know, one of the um, things people struggle with who've been, well, let's say all of us, we've been, this is the backdrop of our lives this year, is the problem of the many and the few. And those, those astonishing numbers, 
mortifying numbers, which we seem to lose grasp of. And, and then the few stories, the individual stories that really touch us, that motivate us to stay in the fight, engaged, writing, researching, teaching, whatever it may be. I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit of your own um, year in that regard. Have there been a few stories that have really stuck with you and kept you um, up late nights and early mornings doing this work? Um, yeah, um, it, it has been a privilege to talk to a wide range of people this year. Um, you know, uh, other, um, like people who work in public health, who work in healthcare, um, who work in sociology, like just a wide range of different fields. Um, uh, people who thought about this problem deeply from a multitude of different angles and have very generously shared their time. Um, and people who've borne the brunt of the virus too, like I've talked to a lot of long haulers um, who continue to this day to struggle with symptoms, many of whom, uh, uh, many of whom are, have, are still struggling with symptoms that they uh, first experienced in March um, and are coming up to their year anniversary of this. Um, I, I think that um, talking to other people who are thinking about this deeply, who have that um, expansive way of thinking we've been talking about that that can look at the the that can look at this crisis in the context of history um, and what is to and and what is to come in the future. Um, that's been one of the upsides of this. Um, you know, it's helped me make sense of this very difficult time. Um, and th this act of, this is how, it's, my my wife Liz Neely talks about this a lot. Um, she's she's very invested in ideas of science communication, of uh, storytelling, and, and especially, and most recently of sense making. This idea that we, we make sense of the world around us as a collective, um, you know, through the stories and the information we, we share and, and trade with each other. And I think by, the interviews I've done this year have not just been useful for writing stories, but have also been a, a, a very deep sense-making experience for me in, in this time of immense turmoil. Um, you know, I mentioned Liz; uh, she is um, she has been my my rock this year, and, and not just in the very supportive, you know, the very very supportive way that everyone credits to their partners. Uh, I hope. Um, but also just as an intellectual co-conspirator. Um, she, she, she shares many of the same values that we've talked about today, about trying to synthesize across different disciplines, trying to look at history and the future. She's got an, a, a rock-solid, immovable moral compass that always points true north. And uh, she, she has been my guide through many, many walks around our um, much smaller world, like the... the, the you know the small blocks around our, our neighborhood um, have been familiar friends, and um, damn it, I have one more answer to this. Um, yeah, um, so uh, one of my um, one of my best friends, uh, Rose Evleth, um hosts a, a beautiful f uh, podcast called Flash Forward, where okay. she yeah, right, so, really great. Uh, it, it's amazing. Uh, Flashboard is a uh, mix of um, sort of 
fiction, uh, like a sort of part radio play, part work of journalism. She explores what different futures might be like and then how um, our past and present might feed into those. Um, and, and Rose has been pivotal in helping me understand that, you know, the future isn't written, that even though it is, um, even when it looks especially dark, um, we get to decide what we want it to be like. And we can do that by taking into account um, the arc of history, the, the, the need for equity. Um, and you know, th those are values that she stands for and that permeate her work. And they are things that I've been thinking a lot about um, uh, this year. Um, and she, so, yeah, she's, she's been a good friend and a great um, intellectual influence. We're almost up on time, but I want to try to get a couple more questions in. I, I put out on Twitter today if anybody wanted to ask you anything, and I got a lot of responses. I want to uh, amplify one from um, a great historian of medicine, Monica Green, uh, and I'm just going to quote what she said. She said, it's clear us pandemic Cassandras weren't sufficiently persuasive uh, two to five years ago, and persuasion is hard even now, a year in. What, she asks, beside basic genetics and immunology, would you add to the K through 12 curriculum to create the educated citizenry that the world needs now? Oh, wow, that's a good question. Um, so in a way, in, in many ways, I think I'm ill suited to answering this question, partly because I have no experience in K to 12 education. Uh, I'm not an educator myself and nor do I even have kids in that age group. So I, I don't want to like, we have we have more than enough people who uh, who who uh, opine their way through areas that they know nothing about. So I'm not going to I'm not going to do that, especially not to Monica. But I, I will answer a slightly different variant of this question. Um, I think for me it has been immensely useful to step outside um, some of those areas that Monica mentioned that are traditionally my wheelhouse, areas of like biology and immunology. Um, to think more about the other areas that that you and her and others uh, are deeply invested in. Um, so the you know the this all the stuff I said about Verco, about that uh, the that whole final section of my most recent uh, piece about how science reacts to the virus, um, getting a better historical understanding of um, the. I guess the structures and systems that have led to how science is carried out today has been tremendously useful. Um, and this is something that, that I've, I've had the privilege of learning um, in many of the pieces that I've done. You know, I wrote a piece about how, um, uh, how Trump's rhetoric around strength and dominance, um, how that mischaracterizes uh, the, the ways in which we deal with a virus. Um, and that piece, you know, I talked to immunologists um, who can talk about like the strength of the immune system, but I also talked about linguists who knew about like what we talk about when we talk about strength in viruses. I talked to anthro medical anthropologists, a, a lot of them. That was invaluable. Um, <laughs> if, if, uh, if the pandemic has radicalized me on any one thing, it's the need for better um, education in the humanities and the social sciences um, when for those of us who focus on science. I think that has enriched my understanding of areas that I've covered for a while. I think it's made the pieces that I've written this year better. And, um, 
you know, I think that that cross-disciplinary focus is something that I would hope to pursue um, in my work in the future. And I think it would be really useful for more people in STEM fields and, you know, more people who work in science and health journalism to, to really delve into. Just to finish up this conversation, I want to return back to that March uh, piece that we talked about earlier, which you coined the Generation C uh, phrase. And you end that piece with a speculation um, and just a, a quick quote from that. You, you say it's possible to envisage a future in which America learns a different lesson, of, uh, a, a lesson of communal spirit, ironically born through social distancing, causes neighbors to turn around to neighbors, both foreign and domestic an election that repudiates American first politics. Um, and you say the US could lead a new global partnership focused on solving challenges like pandemics and climate change. In 2030, SARS-CoV-3 emerges from nowhere and is brought to heel within a month. That's March, which in COVID time is, uh, like you said, we're still, I guess we're just reaching the end of March now, um, a long time ago. You've been covering this story closer, as close as anybody's been covering it. How do you feel about that? that end of that that piece now well um obviously the election bit of it has actually happened yeah you nailed that uh, one. <laughs> and and the country did make a choice that i think leaves us in a much better position to prepare for future pandemics um whether we will go all the way or not remains to be seen um i think that um there will be in some ways through the scientific and technological achievements that we've made this year and the sheer dint of having had an experience with a pandemic to a degree that we have not before, um, that will leave us in better stead in the future. My worry now is that that success um, will allow us to sweep other problems under the rug, that we will vaccinate ourselves into a collective amnesia about um, things that did not go well this year. And that while our immune systems will learn valuable lessons from COVID-19, our collective memory might not. Um, I think that is the risk. I don't know how it's going to play out, but I can say that I do have a piece coming out next week uh, between Christmas and New Year that will address these questions um, and that will look ahead to what the, the future near and far might look like. I wanna remind everybody, you've been listening to COVID Calls and you can catch COVID Calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow. We'll have the last COVID call session before the holiday break. I'll be talking to Heather Schulte, textile artist, um, about her project, Stitching the Situation, a continuation of um, these uh, discussions we've been having with artists who've been making sense of the pandemic through their work. And I just wanna take a second to thank Ed Young and thank you more broadly, um, not only for what you've said here today, but just for this, um, this body of work you're creating. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I hope that was useful to everyone and stay safe, happy holidays. All right, stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, 5 o'clock.